Open today in Acts chapter 2 as we continue in our Good News series. Today we consider what it means to live and speak the good news, not just as individuals, but as a church. The good news and the church. We're going to be looking at the end of Acts chapter 2, and then we'll make reference to a couple of other passages in the book of Acts as well. I would say there are two major errors that believers have made, that churches have made over the years when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing our faith. The first one is the error of assuming that the good news has nothing to do with the church. That evangelism isn't the job of the church, it's the job of the individual Christian. And if someone out there happens to witness to someone who happens to become a Christian, well then we bring them to church. But everything that goes on in the church has nothing to do with an unbeliever. And we don't think that way. Everything we do here is very self-centric in terms of us as believers. And in a very real sense, we come away from the world and we do our thing completely apart from any notion that God might use us as a church to win souls. That's an error. The second error, I would say, is the notion that, yeah, as a church, we have a role to play in spreading the good news, but in order to do that, we have to water down what we believe and who we are and how we behave. In the last 30 or 40 years, there is a a movement called the seeker-sensitive movement, which has sought to win souls through the gathering of the church, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. The problem with it has been that the church, in order to do that, believed that we have to water down what we do and who we are and what we preach in order for us to perhaps win souls. That is an error. What I want us to see today is that the good news impacts lives when the church is the church. Evangelism isn't something that happens completely apart from the church. It's not something that happens by the church pretending to not be itself. The good news has impact, changes lives, wins souls when the church is the church. So I want us to see this in Acts chapter 2. If you know Acts chapter 2, the apostles, after Jesus has ascended in Acts chapter 1, he's gone back to heaven. The apostles have been told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which they're doing, and they're in an upper room, and they're praying, and then in Acts chapter 2, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they are able to speak the good news in other languages, which is exactly what they do. They begin to go out into the city, the place where they had been fearful to go, and now they're boldly proclaiming the good news in various languages, and not surprisingly, they draw a crowd. Peter boldly preaches, and we read that 3,000 souls were saved. After that, after we read of those, uh, that amazing conversion, which we read in uh, verse 41, those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then we find this. They, meaning the, the believers, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There may not be a better description in all of the Bible, including in the epistles where the apostles write to us about what we should do in the church, but this little description of that very first church may be the most beautiful and most helpful in all the Bible. And the conclusion of that description of the church and its activities was this. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We find a very similar expression in Acts chapter 5, and we're going to talk briefly about what happened right before this verse. But in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, nevertheless, notice it was almost unexpected in light of what had just happened in Acts chapter 5. Nevertheless, in spite of that, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And then we see it again in Acts chapter 6. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. My point is that if ever the church was the church, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, the church was the church. And was there ever a time in which the church was more successful at soul winning than in those early days of that first church in Jerusalem? If anything happens today as we go through this message, I want us as a church to be absolutely convinced that if we could be the church truly and fully to be a healthy church according to the vision of God, that people will be saved. We don't have to be ashamed of who we are. We don't have to be embarrassed by our Savior. We don't have to water down God's word. We just have to be who God has saved us to be. So I want us to see in Acts chapter 2, and we'll take a quick look at these other two passages in Acts 5 and 6 as well. But I want us to see in Acts chapter 2 predominantly, what does it mean for the church to be the church? So here's the first thing. When the church is the church, God's word is prioritized. One of the great errors that the church has made in the last 40 years is to assume that to win souls, we can't really preach God's word. People can't accept it. They can't understand it. They won't, they won't believe it. So we'll water it down. We'll do self-help. We'll talk about felt needs. Now, there's a place for those things. I would argue that actually if we preach the Bible as the Bible, the Bible addresses those kinds of things, things that people are experiencing in their own lives, their sin and brokenness. We'll actually address those things as we preach the word. But God's word is Prioritize. You see it there, verse 42 of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were not embarrassed by God's word. They made it a priority. They wanted to know what the apostles knew. Why? Because Jesus had poured into the apostles the knowledge of his truth, ultimately that would become his word. The apostles, the primary writers of God's word. The people of God long to know. It's discipleship. It's the discipleship path. To follow Jesus is to follow a rabbi, a great teacher, 
We want to know everything that he knows. We'll never know everything Jesus knows, but it's a priority to us to learn God's word. We're not ashamed of it. We're not embarrassed of it. It is our priority. It's so valuable to us as a church because as we proclaim in the preaching of God's word, it's just like all through historical uh, and Bible times. God used someone speaking out loud his truth and his word to change lives, and he's still doing it today. So we prioritize that here. We proclaim God's word. And I think virtually every Sunday, we have people among us who are yet to be saved, but they're hearing the proclamation of God's word. The other thing that's happening is all of us are hearing God's truth proclaimed. And hopefully, and I, I always love to look down as a preacher and see people, they got their notepad out and they're taking notes because they're just hungry to learn and to know. And why is that important? It's because the things that we learn together here, now we can take out into the marketplace and into the world and into our neighborhoods and we can share the things that God has taught us through his word. That's how we win souls. How do we win souls? We win souls as people are confronted with the truth of who God is, of who we are, and of what Jesus has done for us. We need to know those things and be able to communicate those things. And so as a church, we prioritize God's word. Paul wrote this, and uh, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the church is God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the, church, of the truth. The church is that. In the world today, do you understand that as a church, this is, our, this is our responsibility in our world and in our local community, that we will stand on the foundation of God's word. We will uphold, like a pillar, God's word. We will not be ashamed. We will not back away from God's truth. And then I love this, these two verses from 1 Corinthians 14, an interesting chapter when Paul is uh, talking about uh, speaking in tongues uh, that supernatural event from the day of Pentecost became part of early church worship. People spoke in, in tongues, and actually in chapter 14, Paul was cautioning against that, and what he's saying is what we really need in the church is prophecy, and prophecy, by the way, isn't necessarily some foretelling or fortune-telling or something. Generally, in the, in the Bible, the word prophesy means to speak God's truth. It's kind of like preaching. That's what it means to prophesy. So in chapter 14, he's cautioning the believers against speaking in tongues and particularly not translating what they're speaking for those who don't understand. And he says, actually, what you should emphasize in the church is prophesying, speaking out God's truth. And he says, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, speaking God's truth, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, I, I've seen this happen. It's happened in this room. Uh, Lord willing, I, I long for this to happen every Sunday. That not only someone who comes in who's a seeker, who maybe isn't a believer, but for every one of us, as we hear God's word proclaimed faithfully, we have this sense that God is here. God is here among us. As we worship, as we sing the songs of worship that we've sung today, we have this sense as we, as we gather in the name of Jesus and we sense the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and transforming us, we can say this. God is really among you. Do you see how Paul had no fear that when the church gathered and preached God's word, 
that some, uh, someone who comes in uninformed, not knowing, not understanding, a seeker, will literally meet God as the word of God is proclaimed. When the church is the church, God's word is prioritized. When the church is the church, God's people are unified. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. What is fellowship? We think of it as Potluck Sunday, and rightly so. I've got to say, that's one of my favorite ways of having fellowship. The Greek word here is a word that's very hard to translate in English. So we use the word fellowship. What it literally means is to have in common. Koinonia. To have in common. What this means is believers are meant to be so, not, not just that we get along, that's good. That's an important thing for a church. Unity in a church, yes, we get along. We have the same priority. Our focus is on Jesus. Our focus is on the good news. But not just that, because koinonia means we have in common. We, we, it is life together with life. We share life. We do life together. That is the idea here of the word fellowship, and it's so emphasized in this passage. Notice in verse 44. It just says it. All the believers were together. Now, I think that means physically they were gathering together, and we read about it. They went to the, uh, to the temple courts. That was a place where literally thousands of people could gather in one space. But then we read about them breaking bread or sharing meals together house to house. That was a handful of people, maybe 10 or 20 at the most. But they were together, not just physically, I get the sense from verse 44, it was their hearts knit together in this common idea that God through salvation has made us his people and now we are on a mission together to reach this world and they were so knit in this, their hearts knit together in this. Remember, these were people who were already and soon to face persecution, but together, and with God's help and presence, they wanted to be the church. Do you recognize the power of the unity of God's church? I have talked in my uh, ministry experience to people who, who, who not, not as believers, came through a church door and just witnessed and experienced and, and could almost feel the love of God's people and as they watched people interacting and saying hello and hadn't seen each other for a week and yeah, maybe even some hugs and, and just real warm uh, friendship and deep concern, that is tangible. And I, I've, I've heard unbelievers say that the love in that place, there's something there. Of course, ultimately that is the presence of God, but the presence of God is seen and known and felt through the unity, the love of God's people. So here's the thing, like some of, some of us sit here and think, well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't, I don't have the gift of evangelism. But one of the problems is we come to church not recognizing that what's happening when we gather together is actually something that's very profound and very powerful that could impact the life of someone who's sitting here right now today. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't just come to church as that religious thing we do on Sundays but we should come to church knowing that we are gathering as the people of God in the presence of God and as we live this love that we share together, that God is going to impact lives. 
He's gonna change the lives of the believers who are gathering here, but he can powerfully speak to an unbeliever who comes in and finds us united and unified and loving one another deeply. Do you understand that? This is God's intention for us. As you live in your neighborhood and your neighbors watch you interact with brothers and sisters in your life from your church or maybe from your small group, there is a gospel impact that they are seeing vividly as God's people are unified. Think of some of the things that Jesus said. John 13, after he's washed the feet of his disciples and then he gives them this commandment. He says it's a new commandment. Old commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. Now I'm gonna give you a new commandment as I have loved you. Now you should love one another. And then he says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Don't you love that? This is Jesus in all of his wisdom. He's saying that the world will look and see that we are truly followers of Jesus by our love. And by the way, our love for one another is meant to, and we're gonna see this in a moment, it's meant to spill. The glass is meant to tip over and the love is meant to spill out, not just here within our walls, but into a world that is desperate for Jesus. But it begins here. It bubbles up here in our love for God, our experience of his love for us, in our practicing of love for each other. It is a powerful and vivid picture of the good news. Do you believe that? We used to sing that old song, right? They'll know we are Christians by our love. Do we, do we believe that? How are we actively coming to church with the intention, I need to love somebody today, right? I mean, how many of us have come to church thinking, boy, I hope so-and-so is there. I, I want to see my friends. I hope the music's good. I hope the preacher isn't boring this time. And not coming with that idea that I get to love someone today and actually praying, Spirit, fill me to love someone today, to love my brothers and sisters, to encourage someone who needs encouragement today. That's our responsibility. We don't get to wash our hands of this and say, well, that's the pastor's job. No. If it was left to me, it would be abysmal. We all need to do this together. And then Jesus, four chapters later, he's praying to God. He's praying for us. He's praying for his original disciples. He's praying for all his future disciples. And he says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You hear that? In the unity of the church, there is a testimony to the coming of Jesus. He says that they may be one as we are one, Jesus and his Father one, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me. You, do, do you see? Like, I, I want us to be excited about the fact that if you're sitting here today thinking, oh, I am so bad at evangelism, well, you can do this, right? We, we can all do this. We can pursue and live out and practice the unity and love of the church, knowing that as we do that in our lives, people are seeing something of Jesus. And it's powerful. When the church is the church, God's word is prioritized, God's people are unified, and then Jesus is magnified. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, this is an interesting expression because a little bit later in these verses, we're going to find them breaking bread house to house. In that second case, my tendency is to think, well, breaking of bread there means hospitality. It means sharing meals together. My tendency in the first one is to think, well, this is 
breaking the bread in communion. And actually, it's a little bit tricky to know uh, if I'm right in that. But here's what I would say to you. When Paul wrote about communion in 1 Corinthians 11, he said this, as often as you break this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So think with me for a moment, in that day and age, in that culture, how often did people break bread or eat bread and drink wine for their meals? Answer, every meal. Is it possible that every time Christians gathered and they found themselves, oh, what are we eating tonight? Bread. And it immediately became a moment of reflection on Jesus. I have a feeling that that's exactly what was happening, and there is overlap here in this expression of breaking bread to, to mean both the remembering of Jesus in communion and the hospitality of the saints sharing meals together. Because I really believe that as they did that, practically speaking, they needed to do that, gathered in the temple courts, the big church, gathered in people's homes, small church, kind of like small groups like we do. And as they did that, as they shared meals together, they remembered Jesus because they broke bread and they drank wine. Tell me, was it a bad thing if that happened like multiple times a week or even multiple times a day? No, not a bad thing at all. A wonderful thing. And as a church, we should never be embarrassed or concerned that we're talking about Jesus too much, that we're saying his name too often, that we're singing too many songs about the Savior, that we're too often making reference to the cross. There, it is not possible for us to overemphasize Jesus and his sacrifice for us. It's possible for us to underemphasize it. It's not possible for us to overemphasize it. And as we do that as a church, you know what happens? Anyone who comes by, who hears what's going on, a seeker comes through the doors, and they hear us talking about you. Who is this Jesus? They never stop talking about Jesus. And what is the cross? Well, that's exactly what they need to hear about. And if they understand nothing, they go away knowing that those people love this guy Jesus, and he did something on a cross. And that's exactly what they need to know. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, speaking to a church, when he met with a church and ministered to a church, he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When the church is the church, we will never be embarrassed to say the name of Jesus. Are we? I find it kind of weird sometimes to have conversations with other believers and the name God is totally fine. We're good with that. We can talk about God. But to talk about Jesus gets a little weird and a little uncomfortable. And I don't know if that's true for you, but if it is, we want to eradicate that from our lives. How do we do that? Practice. Talk about Jesus with your kids. Say his name. Talk about Christ with your husband or your wife, with your friend. Uh, with your Christian co-worker, in the lunchroom even. Say his name, practice it. If it's embarrassing or weird for you to say the name Jesus, then we want to get over that. And we, do, we can practice that on Sunday mornings, even simply by singing the songs that we sing. When the church is the church, God's word prioritized, God's people unified, Jesus magnified, miracles normalized. Oh, you didn't think that one was coming, did you? 
Not here at Wallenstein, but it's here in our passage, isn't it? Verse 43, everyone filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Ah, well, here's our problem right here. Because in those days, miracles were happening. You can read on in the book of Acts, and when the, the shadow of the apostle Peter fell on some sick person as he walked down the street, they got healed. Well, if we could do that, I mean, if Andreas could do that, surely then we'd have people getting saved, wouldn't we? So what do we do with this in our day and age where we, not just us as a church, but generally speaking, we don't, we don't read, we don't hear about things, and sometimes when people claim these things have happened, you look through the curtains a little bit and you realize, I'm not sure that's legitimate. But when the church is the church, miracles are normalized, the supernatural is expected. I really believe that. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. So we may not see the kinds of healings and things that people in those days saw. If you ask me why is that, well, one of the reasons why that is is because those people didn't have hardly any kind of health care like what we have today. God has blessed us with doctors and hospitals. A second reason might be that in those days, the church was in its infancy. Here's, here's a brand new movement happening where Jesus, who everyone thought was a cult leader, is actually and truly the savior of the world. And so God used miracles to, uh, to emphasize and to uh, solidify the message that the apostles were giving. We're not in that time anymore. In our time, we have the full word of God in writing. Never a book in the world has been printed as often as the Bible has. Now, in our time, we have the church. We live in a Bible belt. And I, I, I wonder if God might say this to us, that if the church was the church, the people of our world would see all kinds of supernatural things. Not necessarily, I can go and heal someone who's sick or just eradicate cancer or the kinds of things that maybe we see happening here. But here's the thing. Everything that God intends to do in you and through you, everything that God intends to do in us and through us as a church is supernatural. God intends for you to be sanctified. That means transformed from the person you used to be into the very likeness of Jesus. Can you do that on your own? No. Man, I, I find day to day, I, I just have to pray and ask God to enable me, to strengthen me, to help me to keep the wrong words out of my mouth and to say the, the things that I should say and do the things that I should do, to be the husband that I should be, the father that I should be, the friend that I should be. I, I need God's help desperately. So God's intention is to transform us. God's intention is to, as we see in the book of Acts here, to embolden us. I mean, one of the beautiful ways we see, and it's actually, if you flip over to chapter four, the first time the uh, apostles are arrested and threatened if you look at verse 23 of chapter 4, you find the first thing they do when they're released is they gather as a church. Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all to the chief priests and the, the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they pray a prayer. And if you go down to verse 31, after they prayed, the place they were meeting in was shaken. See, that's, that's the one we want. 
That's the, I want that. Before I go to heaven someday, I want to be in a prayer meeting where the whole room shakes. There was a prayer meeting happening. This is in uh, Jim Symbol. I talked about this in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, which is about prayer. And they're meeting in New York, and they're having a prayer meeting, and the building started to shake. And everyone's like, whoa, this is it. And they realize, no, it's the subway. See, that's the one we want. We want that one. We, we, want, we want that one where the building shakes. But notice the next one. They were all filled <clears throat> with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, this is the miracle that we need, that I need, that we as a church need. Because I suspect that this church is filled with lots of people like me who feel like, I'm not very good at this. I, I'm not very bold to speak to my neighbor or my coworker or someone that God places in front of me. And yet this is exactly what God promises. If we would trust and obey, we could experience this supernatural boldness that would enable us to speak the good news. When the church is the church, miracles normalized. Yesterday I got to sit with a young man to talk about baptism we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about how, you know, in Bible times, they just they didn't have a church building to kind of hide away and get baptized in. It was all done in public. Talked about that. And my, my response to that question was actually, well, you know, if you get baptized, you can invite whoever you want. You can invite the whole world. They can all come in here and witness this. So we were talking about that, and, and uh, near the end of the time, Suddenly, this young guy jumps up. And previously in the conversation, he told me that there had been a period of time in his life where, you know, he just wanted to fit in, he just wanted to be cool. And he says, oh, I gotta go. He jumps up from the table and he says, these are the guys I was telling you about. Because he told me that he had these friends. He just wanted to fit in. He just wanted to be cool. And near the end of our conversation, that group of friends had come into the Tim Hortons and they were heading out the door. He says, I gotta go invite them to my baptism. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm like, oh, this is a God moment. I love God moments. We can have God moments. They may not seem as big, we may not write books about them, but the reality is that God is in them, and that's when the church is the church. Jesus said, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move Nothing will be impossible for you. You know what? I've actually never heard of a follower of Jesus moving a mountain, which means that this is a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's a hyperbole that's meant to communicate truth, and that is that there are mountains in our lives, primarily for us perhaps that mountain of our fear to speak the good news to others in our lives. Jesus can move that mountain? Will we pray? Will we believe? We actually should take a few moments and talk about prayer because that's one of the things that we see the disciples continuing steadfastly in, in chapter 2. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Is it possible that we fail to see our God moments because we simply don't pray? When the church is the church, kindness is realized. We love these descriptions, don't we, in these verses of, of how the believers cared for each other. 
Verse 43, they, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. You can read on in the early chapters, you'll find this described even more fully. Their unity was so deep that it went all the way to finances. That when, when a rich person had extra, he sold what he had extra to share with those who had nothing. Kindness. Again, I, I've been a Christian, I've met so many Christians who feel like, you know, just sharing the good news is so hard for me. But do we realize the power of kindness? When I talk about the good news, I, I like to say that our job as Christians is to declare it, it is, and it is to display it. And one of the beautiful ways that we get to put the gospel on display in our lives is through kindness. So the believers did this. In terms of their church family, they were kind to one another. If you go over to chapter six, that was actually the whole point of the story in the early verses of chapter six, is that there was a group of widows in the church who were not being cared for, who needed help, financial and otherwise, and they were not being cared for. In this case, it was because they weren't Jewish. Of course, the church was meant to cross all of those boundaries, and so the apostles wisely set up a team of, of men who we might think of, I think rightly so, as deacons, in order to care, to show kindness, to provide support for these widows. And it's after that where we find those beautiful words expressed. It was after the church began to care properly for its own, to show that kindness within its own family. And then it says it again, the word of God spread, verse seven, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Do you realize, do we as a church realize the power of kindness? Here's where I said earlier that I think love and kindness is one of those things that's meant to spill, spill over, spill out of the glass of our church so that the world around us gets to taste and see the Lord's goodness and kindness. I really believe this as a church. Some of my most favorite activities as a pastor have been times when uh, as, as a church we've put a team of people together to do something to help someone in need. And the power of, the way that that empowers our message is, is just so real. Kindness is realized when the church is the church. We show kindness to each other. We find ways to show kindness to the world around us. Jesus said this, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we shine the light by, by declaring the good news and we shine the light by displaying the good news. Next, the church is the church when God's holiness is recognized. So here's the crazy one, uh, chapter five, one of those places where we're told about how the church grew. You can look at that verse again, verse um, 14. Nevertheless, more and more, Men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Go back to verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Notice verse 13. No one else dared join them. No one else dared join. You know what? You want to know why? Because in the first verses of 
Acts chapter 5, two people died. They were church members, Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife. And they were so impressed by other believers who were doing what I shared a few minutes ago, selling property and bringing the money to the apostles so that they could distribute it to the poor people. They saw Barnabas do that. They saw other people do that. They're like, boy, these people, they seem really spiritual. Everyone seems so impressed and so grateful for their generosity. We should do this. How, how could we do this? Well, they're fairly wealthy. They've got a piece of property, so they sell it, which they can do. They're absolutely welcome. It's their right to sell that property. And they bring part of the money, which was totally fine. The problem was, and this was the simple problem with what Ananias and Sapphira did. They sold the property, and they, they pretend, did I say properly or property? They pretended that they were giving the entire amount of the money from the property that they sold. Why did they do that? Because they were hypocrites. Because they wanted people to think highly of them. Now, they didn't have to give the whole amount, but they certainly shouldn't have lied about it. And because of that lie and because of that hypocrisy, God killed them. Now, boy, is this when the church is the church, when God starts knocking people off? And let's look in the mirror and ask, if God killed people for hypocrisy, would I be here today? I want you to notice what it says. After Sapphira died, notice verse 16, sorry, that's verse 10. At that moment, she fell down at, the feet, at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Notice now, great fear seized the whole church. And notice what it says. All who heard about these events. You know what that means? It wasn't just the Christians who heard about Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't just the Christians who suddenly had a, a huge glimpse of God's holiness there were all kinds of people outside the church who heard about this, which is why later it says that no one dared join them. I'm not sure I want to be part of this church because people die for hypocrisy. And yet, verse 14 tells us, in spite of all, and that's why it says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. I think our tendency is to hide the fact that God is holy. I think our tendency is to hide the fact that sin is ugly. I think our tendency is to hide the fact that sin is deserving of judgment, thinking that somehow we will win more people, and yet I would argue that we actually don't win people. Because if someone doesn't recognize the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin and the wonder of, of the salvation that's offered to us as sinners, they actually won't be saved. They have to understand those things. We are not embarrassed or ashamed of the holiness of God, of the sinfulness of sin, and of our need for a Savior. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Finally, the good news is verbalized. Why did the word of God spread? It's because of what we read in chapter 4. The people prayed for boldness. God answered their prayer, and they went everywhere proclaiming the good news. Paul said, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. When the church is the church, the good news impacts lives. 
And that's the kind of church that I want to be part of. That's the kind of church I want us to be. I hope all of us want us to be this kind of church, trusting that God will, as he has been, change lives through the gospel. On June 25th, there's going to be an opportunity if you're like me and you feel like, boy, I need to really grow in some of these areas when it comes to sharing the good news. Uh, Godfrey, who spoke last week, is going to be uh, offering a kind of a class, seminar style. It's going to happen after the service on June 25th. We'll probably either have you bring a lunch or provide a lunch, and then we'll get to take in that uh, session for about an hour. So if you're feeling some conviction in this area, I hope that you will plan to join us on June 25th.